My father came, not for the spice, not for the riches, but for the strength of your people. My road leads into the desert. I can see it. If you'll have us, we will come. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Tatum. And I'm Geneva. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Geneva, it has been a, a long week, but we are here. <laughs> it has felt like a long week. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that being said, have you been able to watch anything during this uh, this past week? Honestly, this week has all been rewatches for me. Hmm. Um, okay. <clears throat> I rewatched two things. I rewatched Oppenheimer, my favorite film of the year, in what is possibly my new favorite format to see a movie, which is a community screening at my local library in which I was one of two people under the age of 65. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. Honestly, it was really fun. And I I love seeing movies in contexts where the the audience is very responsive, not obnoxious, not rude, but no. responsive, you know. And I was seated right in front of this one older man who, bless him, at random lines where there's something vaguely sort of dryly funny going on, he would just go, huh, <laughs> really loudly. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. I loved it so much. Did um, you talk to anyone after the movie or no? Yeah, the the one other person under 65, <laughs> this woman <laughs> I was sitting next to, um, who had not seen the movie before. Um, mm. And uh, she'd interacted kind of with the story of the Manhattan Project in other ways, but she didn't have a, know a whole lot about the, the Oppenheimer movie going in. So we chatted a little bit afterwards, and that was really fun. Nice. Uh, the other movie that I've seen this week is I just rewatched the 2020 version of Emma with Anya Taylor-Joy, which mm. is such a delight. I I really, really love this version of Emma. Um, it's grown on me. I mean, I, I liked it at the time. I think it's just grown on me the more I rewatch it. It is definitely, you know, with any film, you need to consolidate um, any filmed adaptation of a novel. You need to consolidate and... You can't keep everything in. There are parts of the story that they really kind of cut down to the minimum that I wish we had a little more of, specifically the Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax characters, because I think they're really, their storyline is really interesting in its own right. And I think it is really important for Emma's character development. They really, in this version, they kind of cut that down to the the barest of bones. Um, But that's okay, you know. Like I said, you you can't keep everything. I what I really appreciate about this version of Emma is, and I think this is the director has talked about this in interviews, um, how much she wants to kind of humanize everything, even as the the world and the art direction is all extremely like, um, you know, it's very specific, it's very colorful, it's very sort of Instagram. Um, you know, curated, but the way that the characters act are very human and relatable. You know, we see them kind of in frustration. We see them um, getting dressed and undressed every day, you know, kind of peeling back the layers and seeing that these are 
human beings who live in a different time but operate still the same. Um, I really have come to appreciate the performance of Johnny Flynn as Mr. Knightley in a way that I think I... He's so different from other versions of Mr. Knightley's. I think I struggled with that a little bit, seeing it the first time. But the more I see it, the more I really love his take on the character and how, you know, he's not this sort of imposing, perfect figure who's coming into Emma's life. He is very human and vulnerable himself. And he's nervous and he has a crush on Emma and he's, you know, doesn't really know what to do about it. And then when she does something obnoxious that disappoints him, it, it really upsets him. And I just really love that dynamic. And I think it works so well with Anya Taylor-Joy's take on Emma, which I really love how much of a bitch Emma is <laughs> in this movie. You know, she's very much the queen bee of your high school who is, you know, popular and privileged and nice to everyone to their face, but doesn't feel any compunction about speaking behind their back about someone she doesn't like. And... This movie is about humbling her and allowing her to grow and to have more compassion to other people. And I think she handles all of that really well. So, yeah, I really love this take on Emma. It, it, it looks beautiful, but I think it's also all the performances are really well done as well. So, yeah, those are the two things that I watched this week. I remember liking that movie when I first saw it. I mean, I didn't I didn't like love it because I don't have the same connection to Jane Austen novels that most other people do when they read them. Um, but. I remember liking that movie and there was one particular part that made me laugh really like really really hard I don't remember what the line was but yeah I, I thought it was very very funny um yeah so for me this week I um I'm back at work so I don't really have time to watch anything but last night um I had a friend come over and we, we watched Dune together but then after we finished Dune we were like it's 9 p.m. Can we really justify going to bed at this hour? <laughs> and um, her and I were talking about getting together every week, once a week anyway, to watch the TV show Good Omens. And so we had gotten together, I think it was three weeks back to watch the first episode. And then it's been a few weeks. But yeah, so it was it was like three weeks ago, we'd gotten together and watched the first one. And then a few weeks went by just because I started work and I was kind of adjusting to my new schedule. So last night we ended up watching episode two and this show, I've been wanting to watch it for years and I think, yeah, like I just finally was motivated to watch it and it is so, so incredibly funny especially for people who have any sort of in-depth knowledge of Christianity because it is so detailed and meta and has these like aspects of of Christianity that it makes into jokes that if you don't if you don't get it you don't get it but if you get it you really get it um so yeah I mean I really love it I will say one of the things that does bother me about it is that visually it looks very cheap um, I, you know, a lot of the visual effects just look entirely, entirely fake. Like they're not believable at all. And they take me out of it. Um, the props also just kind of look like plastic in certain moments. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of a little bit of a trade-off. I love, I love the acting. I love the performances. I love the writing. It's really, really clever, really, really witty. Um, but visually it's, it's a little bit 
um, a little bit disappointing to me. Um, so kind of like how you are with Netflix stuff, which I agree with you. The Netflix look is not really for me. Um, but this one in particular, I'm just like, Ooh, these are, these are choices, but are they choices? It kind of looks like they just don't have enough money to do this. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I watched an episode of that. Go ahead. Uh, this is the one with, uh, David Tennant and Michael Shannon, uh, I was going to say Michael Shannon, Michael Sheen. (laughs) So I haven't, um, interacted with any of Neil Gaiman's work. And so I sometimes get the, the titles mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. So it is that one. Um, yeah, it's very good. I am looking forward to continuing the series. Um, it's just, it's just really, it's just really funny. Um, and also I don't remember, uh, I know Michael Sheen is the one guy's name. I don't remember the other guy's name. Um, the actor, but he plays basically the, the demon character who's named Crowley and his, swagger is out of this world it's just like every time he steps on screen you're just like damn that guy is so cool he's so (laughs) cool like he's just I mean if you like David Tennant in like sort of sci-fi fantasy mode can I introduce you to three seasons of Doctor Who which are delightful yeah yeah I mean I've Doctor Who there's just so many seasons I feel overwhelmed but I get the feeling that his character in Good Omens is very different in terms of like how he carries himself um, because he lit like he has this whole walk where he like drags his leg and it's just he's great. His hair is just it. He's that person where anyone who watches the show looks at him and is like, I want to be that guy. But also I know for a fact that I could never be that guy because I'm just not cool enough. Um but yeah, so that's Good Omens. Uh, I've only watched two episodes, but so far I'm really enjoying it. Um, and I look forward to continuing to watch it in the weeks that come. So. Where did you see it? Oh, it's a, it's an Amazon Prime original show. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard some decent things about that show. I mean, what you said about it and Christianity makes me a little bit cautious, but it, I have heard, heard, heard really good things about the acting. And I, I love David Tennant. I love Michael Sheen. I think they have a long standing friendship outside of I could be wrong about this but um apparently they have great chemistry with each other on screen and yeah um, yeah the little that I've seen of it looks very well performed yeah it's definitely it's definitely a satire um in terms of how it approaches Christian <laughs> like there's this whole concept of like they're bringing the they're kind of talking about the end of the world and the antichrist comes as a baby and you know, the demon is like tasked with making sure the antichrist goes to the right place to be able to grow up in the right circumstances to bring about the end of the world. And the baby ends up getting swapped. And then it's like, Oh no, where's the, where's the antichrist? We don't know where he is. Like, And then in episode two, they find out 11 years later, Basically, someone takes the babies and then it's supposed to be like after so-and-so gets the Antichrist 11 years after that, that's when everything begins. And so they've been watching this baby for 11 years. And then when the moment comes, they're like, wait, it didn't happen. Do we have the wrong child? And so they do all this research to find the other child and they they find out that the child, the address of where he lives is like 666. It's so, it's just so funny. Um, but anyway, it's good. 
but yeah, so I think you and I both brought up movies or TV shows that are um, adapted content from books. So hey, I yeah. would use that <laughs> as my transition into beginning this episode. Very nice. Oh, I should <laughs> mention, because uh, I forgot, um, I watched Emma on DVD. So I have the DVD. Oh, there you I'm go. not aware of it being streaming anywhere. But if it is, go watch it. Yeah, it's. A, I, I remember enjoying that movie. Um, so yeah, today on the show, we are discussing Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 classic sci-fi book of the same name, Dune, which uh, this obviously is part one of two movies, but the book series is quite long. I think there are six of them. I own the first three um, because apparently, according to people the story kind of goes off the rails after like the third book and gets did you super weird. Up, did you end up what reading the first book? Cause I remember that was your intention after first seeing the movie. Yeah, I read, I read the first book, but I did not get to the second or the third um, because they're just, they're very, um, they're very dense. It's just a lot of, a lot of material and uh, it, they just take a while to read, but the first one was very, very good. So I enjoyed it. Um, which is why, you know, it's so well known and people um, love this book. And also, you know, Star Wars was adapted and like based, not adapted, but based off of this story. And a lot of people that are fans of the book are kind of frustrated that Star Wars is more well known when it's like, hey, guys, the concept of the force and the concept like all of this comes from Dune. Um, but Anyway, to be fair, Star Wars may be slightly more accessible for the uh, <laughs> the lay sci-fi fan than this is a true. Seven hundred page <laughs> sci-fi novel. <laughs> this is true, um, but yeah. So I will just say, kind of as I mentioned earlier, I am back at work, which means uh, I don't really have much time or energy to do things. I watched Dune last night. Uh, I tried to cram in some research this morning before this episode. I didn't really, uh, I was not able to do very much. So honestly, the research that I'm going to tell you is based off of my own prior knowledge. Um, because after watching this movie, I watched a lot of um, videos and documentaries about the making of this movie. So I'm going to kind of go from my memory. Um but the one thing that I did research is that this movie was a box office success. It earned $402 million and it was made on a budget of $165 million. So that basically more than doubles its profits. So that's a success. Go Dune. Go Denis Villeneuve. Um, it's great. So just to say off of my memory, so Denis Villeneuve has been very vocal about these are his favorite books. They were very formative for him. He read them at um, a young age. I think he was like a preteen or something like that. Um, oh, wow. But yeah, he was pretty young when he read them. Um, but apparently ever since he read them or ever since he became a filmmaker, he wanted to adapt this book. Like it's been a goal of his for a long time. And so he was thrilled for the opportunity to uh, come on board and and be, you know, the leader of making this happen. Um, That's amazing. I, I yeah. love hearing stories like that. Yeah. And he kind of has, I mean, famously said for people who like follow this stuff, but he has famously said he did a, um, 
I forget what it is. I think it's Vanity Fair that does these, but they're called um, notes on a scene where directors and sometimes their actors kind of get together and they show one scene from their movie and they break it down. And so he did this, I think it's with Vanity Fair, and he broke down the Gom Jabbar scene, which is the one where um, where Paul is like being tested by the Bene Gesserit. Um, but he says in that video, he's like, ultimately, at the end of the day, I made this movie for me. And I made this movie for my inner child. And I feel like if I was a kid and I saw this movie, I would be proud of what I made. Um, So, yeah, he really loves these books and wanted to do it for a long time. Uh, So, yeah, I would just overall, I would highly recommend going to YouTube and just looking up videos of how this movie was made. There's a really great, I think it's about 15 minute video of Hans Zimmer explaining how he came up with the sounds in this movie because he didn't just compose the score he also did a lot of the sound design if not all of it Um, and it's really impressive he worked with people and invented instruments and all of these things it's really really interesting and really impressive Um, so I would recommend looking that up it's a great video Um, and then the other one is like I said you know just look up a general um making of because I think there's like an hour long uh video of that on YouTube that's from Max I think it might actually be on Max but I know it's on YouTube um and Denis Villeneuve and his crew they kind of break down how they designed the ornithopters and the ships and how they designed the homes and the structures and the costumes and all of these things and how one of the things that I really love about this movie as well as just fantasy in general is um when people put real dedication and real time and hard work into creating new worlds and so much care was put into this in terms of every room they created they wanted to show history of thousands of years for every prop that they made they wanted to show history like the box that Paul puts his hand into during the Gom Jabbar scene like all of this was intricately designed and created and um it's great. So I would highly recommend watching those behind the scenes because there are things in this movie that were done with CGI, but also a lot of them were done practically as well. Um, and in my opinion, they were seamlessly combined in the final product. So um, that's amazing. I, I've, I've heard many people, I think you included, talk about growing up with the Lord of the Rings on DVD and being able to see so many of the behind the scenes mm. making of featurettes and how that's that was their first introduction to the processes of filmmaking and all the different departments and how much work goes into creating costumes and makeup and props and things like that. I love the idea that for a new generation of people, this movie could be that. Exactly, which is part of why I love this movie so much. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I'll just use that to kind of transition into my relationship with this movie. So like I said, I have read the the first book, but I did not read the book until after I saw the first movie. It was something that had been on my list for a long time, but someone who is a huge high fantasy fan, high sci-fi fantasy fan, I have so many books that are very long that I'm trying to get to, and each series is either anywhere from like four to 15 books. So um, this one was on my list for a long time, but I it, it I just hadn't gotten to it but when the movie came out I was like okay I really feel like this is the time for me to read it um 
But as Geneva kind of just brought up, I am a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings movie movies, the trilogy. Um, they're very formative for me. They introduced me to, in a lot of ways, it was like Monsters, Inc. in the Lord of the Rings. They just introduced me to the beautiful process of what goes into making movies. And I came out of the theater after watching this the first time, and I was so excited because I was like, this is a new Lord of the Rings for me because Lord of the Rings kind of exists on this pedestal that will never be touched. Um, And I never expected to experience something like that again in terms of a movie. Um, And so I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, another one of these things is being made. This is so exciting. Um, because Game of Thrones is great, but you can't see that in a theater on a big screen. You know, it's, it's just a different experience. Um, so yeah, I absolutely loved this movie. I think I saw it three times in theaters in like a month. (laughs) I like, I loved it so much. And then when it came out on, you know, video on demand or streaming or whatever, I watched it again, like right away. Um, I, think that this is a masterpiece um I know ever since it first came out there are there's a fairly large community of people that don't like this movie um they don't like the ending they don't think that anything happens in this movie they don't like the performances and this was actually even when I was trying to I was on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes trying to find reviews of this movie a lot of them were kind of lackluster in terms of like, we're here for the visuals, but the story is lacking, but it doesn't matter because the visuals are great or that's insane. I feel like I have never heard of anyone who doesn't love this movie or at least like really, really respect it. Yeah. I, a lot of people are just very lukewarm on it, um, which I don't understand at all. Um, so I kind of feel like I'm in a minority based off of like the people that I know and, and a lot of the articles that I've read and, and what I've seen online ever since it first came out. Um, but I stand for this movie. I absolutely love this movie. Is it perfect objectively? No. Is it perfect to me? Yes. Um, and ultimately, like to me, that's what matters. I love this film. I have a very good time with it. I have already bought my ticket to see part two in IMAX 70 millimeter. I'm pumped. Um, And yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk about this movie today because I don't know if you and I have ever really talked about this movie together. I don't think we've talked about it since I first saw it and we, we spoke on the phone about it. Um, But I don't think we've really talked about it since. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember you liking it, but I don't know how much you liked it. Probably not as much as me, but <laughs> yeah. So go ahead. Tell us tell us your yeah. relationship to this movie and your thoughts. Yeah, I really, really like this movie. I I don't like it as much as you. And I think it's, it's a similar situation to we recorded our Mad Max Fury Road episode um, recently. And it's a very similar situation in that I think this is an incredible movie. I'm really happy that I saw it again. Um, This is my second time seeing it. Um, And um, yeah, I don't really have any flaws to find with it, apart from the fact that it is very long and there's a very definitive sort of 
oh, the movie's ending. Oh, no, wait, there's another hour <laughs> point. <laughs> but you can't really get around that. Um, they're splitting one book into two movies. Like you have to you have to understand that there are multiple acts within the same book. And that that's completely fine. Um, I it did, doesn't sort of inspire my imagination in the same way that it does yours. But like I said, that's a purely subjective thing. I think this movie is absolutely incredible. I love the world building. I love the sense of history. I really love it as a work of adaptation. I've never I've never read the original book, so I, I can't compare it to that. But I think it does an excellent job of sprinkling all of these incredibly dense and complex um, pieces of lore and history and um, objects and technologies and um, Bene Gesserit powers and things in a way where you don't feel like you're being pummeled with it all at once. They're sort of very naturally worked into the narrative. And so, you know, you see the um, that little force shield thingy at work when Paul is uh, doing his training at the beginning and then that's used throughout the film. And you're like, okay, I have a general idea of how that, what that thing is and how it works. And I'm not going to question it anymore. It's just part of the world, you know, things like that. I think that's a deceptively difficult thing to do. And I think they pull it off really, really well. Um, I think their performances are really good. I feel like I'm a little bit not 100% sold on Timothy Chalamet in this movie, but it, I also might just be like, I don't know, just not on the Timothy Chalamet wavelength <laughs> as much as some other people. Um, but, you know, I, I think he does a, a very good job. I love Rebecca Ferguson in particular in this film. Um, so, yeah, I, I am really happy that I saw this this film a second time. I've been meaning to. It's just, it's very long. <laughs> you have to kind of, you know, sit down and be, prefer be prepared to vibe out with it. Um, but yeah, I'm really glad I did. And I'm really excited for part two. Um, so yeah. I find it funny how you're like, this movie's very long. I, I never, you know, I wanted to watch it a second time, but it was too long. Meanwhile, you've seen Oppenheimer four times, I think, in like six months. And that movie is way longer than this and way more laborious to get through. <laughs> I would disagree, <laughs> but it is objectively longer. That's true. Yeah, it, it's very just subjective, I think, because, you know, there are people that complain that this movie is too long, which to that I respond. I'm like... This movie would be terrible if it wasn't this long because world building takes time. And if yeah. this world was not built and developed in a way that feels real and convincing, everything else would fall apart. So like, <laughs> yeah, to be clear, I don't think that this movie is too long because they have a lot of plot and world building that they need to get get through. And I I think it would really suffer if it was less time than it is. I think the thing that I struggle with is just the pacing of everything seems to be building to the battle on Arrakis and then the battle on Arrakis ends and you think that's where the movie's going to end. It's going to be a sort of, you know, Empire Strikes Back ending where we're down, but, you know, we've survived. So we're going to see what happens next. And then there's a whole other hour of uh, Paul and Jessica running around on Arrakis and meeting up with the Freeman. And to be clear, I love that section of the film. I really love seeing the two of them on their own together. It's just a little bit of a, you know, you have to sort of mentally, oh, Oh, no, we're not done. Okay. Yeah, we're keep we're still going. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, that's kind of what, you know, when I was saying before that a lot of people don't like the ending to this movie, that's the sentiment that they have. They're like, it should have oh. ended an hour earlier. The end of this movie is anticlimactic, giving, like, given 
this story and how it was formatted and how it was put together. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's just like, yeah, no worries. <laughs> like, I understand that, you know, the movie does kind of change a little bit in the last part, but I, I don't know. Like I just, this book is so dense and it's so long and it's like, would you rather have three, like either way, it's going to be really long. And I think the ending really is great. It's like, there's the before the Fremen and then after the Fremen. And to me, that makes sense, you know? Um, but that's just my own personal opinion. Um, I think that fantasy things need to be long because the world should be established. And I'm like, why is the Lord of the Rings acceptable for being long? And then this movie is criticized for being long. Uh, but that's just whatever. To be uh, fair, that's my own Lord of the Rings, <laughs> to be fair, Lord of the Rings specifically does get criticism sometimes for having multiple times when you think the movie's going to end and then it doesn't to be does clear it? oh yeah yeah oh. it does to be clear i think those criticisms are wrong because lord of the rings is um return of the king specifically is perfect but you know it well, does get those criticisms i only know that in the concept of return of the king where it's like there's 12 endings to this movie and i'm like <laughs> yeah. yes there are but all of them are fantastic are needed, yes. and they all need to happen so yes. like if the movie just ended it would be like well what happened to that person and what happened to that person and how did that it's like well we need to know what happened to these people so yeah um, yeah anyway yeah so just that's just my one little quibble that i'm i'm kind of getting out of way out of the way up front um it's very but, common a lot of people yeah, have that same yeah that same yeah. sentiment but yeah otherwise i i really really love this movie also shout out to um in my my master's program uh one of the women in the program did a whole presentation on the use of bagpipes in this mm. film and kind of the history mm -hmm. behind the bagpipe and how it works into the film thematically so yep. i don't know she, i don't think she knows this podcast exists but if she does <laughs> happens to be listening shout out to her <laughs> Yeah, Hans Zimmer also has a whole, a whole portion of that video that I mentioned where he talks about why he chose bagpipes to be in this film. Um, so, yeah, that's super cool that that she also kind of studied that and, like, weaved it into the film. That's cool. Um, one thing I wanted to say that is also another thing that I really appreciate about this movie is a lot of the times when – so I, I – it's been established many times in this podcast. I'm a big high fantasy, sci-fi fantasy person. And majority of the time, if not every single time, when I see these books adapted to screen, they are 80%, if not more, white people. Um, for whatever reason, Lord of the Rings is all white people except for the Uruk-hai, which is like kind of racist but like not I guess and like Game of Thrones everyone's white except for the people that come from the south and are slaves like it's just you know it's a very uh it's just something that bothers me um because growing up I never you know I wanted to dress up like these favorite characters but I never could because I was like oh I don't I don't look like that like I couldn't I couldn't do that um but this movie is incredibly diverse in terms of its cast. And I think it's great. You know, we have people of different races. We have people from different countries, people that speak different languages. We have sign language. We have, you know, all of these different things. And I think that we need more representation like this in movies in general, but especially in this genre. And um, I really like how this movie includes that. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of say that up front. So, yeah, I, I guess, like, I kind of want to go through 
the cast and their performances in if there's anyone of note that you want to kind of shout out or mention. And then beyond that, like it's a very long movie, so I don't really want to go through it chronologically because there's just so much going on. So we can just kind of talk about favorite moments or favorite set pieces or something like that. Um, But yeah, just to start, you had said you had feelings regarding Timothy Chalamet's performance. Care to elaborate? Not not strong feelings. I just feel like I'm not fully on the Timothy Chalamet is one of our greatest, the greatest actors of his generation <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of train. I don't think he's a bad actor, to be clear. Um, I just, to me, he can be kind of limited in his mode, but I, I'm fully prepared to be wrong. Maybe he'll surprise me in part two. I, I had, have really liked him in things, you know, obviously he's incredible in Call Me By Your Name and uh, he's very good in Little Women and things. Um, Lady Bird, were just, too. Yeah, there are just certain moments where I thought I, like, you know, when Duncan uh, Idaho is, that's his name, right? Jason uh, Momoa's character? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Duncan, Iowa. Um, when when he is sacrificing himself, I don't know, I just kind of wish he'd push that moment a little bit more, the anguish, um, things like that. But, you know, maybe that's a calculated decision for the character of Paul, who is a bit more stoic. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm... I'm a little bit mixed on him is the thing, but I I don't really have that strong feelings one way or the other. I will say one moment that worked for me a lot better on this rewatch is the duel at the end. I remember one of the things that I came out of the theater on the first watch thinking was there. I I do not for one second believe that that this tiny little Paula Trainies would have bested that guy in battle. <laughs> but for whatever reason, it worked better for me this time around. I think the sort of um, the setup of the training at the beginning, I think I was maybe paying closer attention to this time around and seeing, you know, he is small, but he is well trained and he is um, he does have a sort of confidence about his own abilities that can sort of make you think that he's more vulnerable than he actually is. And I think the um, just on second watch kind of connecting more the visions and his sense of who he is and the potential, the untapped potential um, within him worked better to kind of support this idea that, you know, people doubt him because of his size, because of the of, you know, everything that has happened to him because he's the sort of, you know, privileged nobleman's son from another planet. But there actually is this real potential for ferocity and um, the sense of destiny about him that is on his side when he's fighting. So yeah, that moment, that that particular moment worked a lot better for me this time around. And I think he handles the all the action very well. Um, and I really love, as I said before, I love all of the scenes with uh, Paul and Jessica together specifically. I really like the, the dynamic that Timothy Chalamet and Je- uh, Rebecca Ferguson have with each other. Uh, I find the the Lady Jessica character such a fascinating character. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's my extremely tepid um, <laughs> thoughts on Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides. Yeah, I mean, I I hear what you're saying. I think I think I'll be able to judge better once part two comes out because I think it is really trying to establish this idea of you know when the story starts, he's kind of this timid little kid who has this training but doesn't really understand you know what it's for or what his potential is kind of like you said and then as the story goes on he becomes without 
you know, really spoiling stuff, but he becomes a lot more um, in the opposite direction of where he starts. And so I think it's kind of setting up for where he's going so that we have a little bit more of this um, character arc for him. But at least that's how it is in the book. I don't know if that will like come through in part two. We Time will tell. Yeah. Uh, next also, week we'll talk about it, I guess. Actually, yeah. no, because we've already recorded that episode. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> cutting that out. Okay. Um, I also really love the moment. Like it, it stuck out more for me on this watch where... Um, Paul and Jessica are in the tent and Paul breathes in the spice and has all these visions and he starts freaking out about like, what have you done to me? Why have you, you know, created me as this sort of messiah figure? You have basically turned me into a freak who can't have a normal life or any sort of, um, you know, any sort of sense of self apart from this destiny that's been imparted upon me. And I really love that moment because it shows this kind of hesitation and an understanding of the weight of everything that's being expected of him and then his choice to then go on to accept it and kind of fully lean into it you know the quote that you read at the beginning is him saying no 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 I'm not going to go with the destiny that everyone thought I would go go with you know being the the future of House Atreides I'm going to go with the destiny of being whatever messiah figure um, is people think that I might be is a really interesting choice and it says a lot about his character Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, spices, it'll become more and more of a theme as the story goes on and how it affects him. But yeah, I just to kind of shout out, I think I told you this maybe when the movie first came out. I stand by it. I think that Javier Bardem's performance is the best performance in this movie. Oh, um, interesting. Every single time I watch it, he he gives like the Andrew Scott in 1917 performance for me where He's not really in this movie very much, but every single time he steps on screen and you look at him and you hear him speak, I just, he's so good in this movie and I can't wait to have more of him in part two. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to shout, shout that out because. Can you speak more to what he's doing that really works for you because I, I I don't really feel that way but I'm I'm intrigued yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's so much going on around him he's not usually the one that I'm focusing on but I'm really intrigued to hear like what I should look for on my next watch well for me he's just someone where out of everybody in this movie I just look at him and I'm like you are a real person like you are not playing a character not that I feel that with the other people but he immerses me the most I'm just like wow like you exist you are real he he makes me feel like Arrakis and the Fremen are a place I could go and the people that I could speak to um he just feels I don't know he just the way that he embodies his character just really communicates this entire other culture um and I feel the same way about um uh what's his name oh who, who plays Jamis, the guy who um, fights Paul at the end. I feel the same way about him too, but he's in the movie even less. Um, <laughs> it's kind of there but, to die, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm just fascinated by the Fremen culture and seeing how it is adapted here. I'm not the biggest Zendaya fan. Um, we'll see what happens in part two, because again, she isn't really in this movie very much. Um, but... I, I find the Fremen to be the most interesting characters in this story. And I think Javier Bardem is the best at kind of 
encapsulating that culture, at least at this point in the story. So, yeah, I think he's phenomenal. He's also just an actor that I love in general. I would love to work with him. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's great. Um, Yeah, I, gosh, I'm really just trying to think about are there any other performances for you in particular that you would like to highlight? I mean, we talked a little bit about Rebecca Ferguson's performance. Well, actually, um, do you have any thoughts on Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides? Do you want to kind of give a, a stronger thumbs up than I <laughs> I do? Well, I don't know if I can give a stronger thumbs up. I mean, I think I kind of express my feelings a little bit in the sense that, like, I do think he is very timid in this movie. Um, he doesn't really command when he's on screen like he's not commanding your attention but I don't think he's supposed to um because he does have a few moments in this film where he does really you know step up and it's like oh wow like I'm like I'm locked into you now but that doesn't happen the whole film and I think that's intentional because it's kind of giving us an idea of what is to come and what he's capable of so I do think he is not really the star of this movie, which I think a lot of people would expect because he is like the chosen one. Um, but I think that that is a good decision by him and by Denis. Um, cause I trust Denis. He, he, he knows what he's doing. So, um, he, I that, think, that man knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of, if no, I think all of the other performances in this movie are so good that I don't think the fact that Paul is different is like, a mistake that Timothy Chalamet can't do it. I think yeah. it's just that, no, this is an intentional choice. Like yeah, that makes there's sense. something going on here. That makes sense. Um, and I really love, again, like now that I've kind of <laughs> expressed like lukewarmness about Timothy Chalamet's character, I actually keep finding moments and I'm like, actually, I really do love that moment. So I yeah. guess maybe I do like this performance a lot. Um, just I think the, it's just the, that his performance can be very overshadowed by others. And yes. So you kind of forget. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, he's kind of, he's learning and he's in, in transition. But I, I love the moments of sort of cold-bloodedness from him that I think are really essential to who he is and what how he will, I assume, later development de- develop. Like I'm thinking specifically the moment when he's in his room on, on Arrakis and that little tracker... Hunter-seeker? Hunter-seeker, yeah thing comes in and he just sort of calmly steps into the this hologram that can hide him I think that's what (laughs) that's how I was interpreting what he was doing um but the way he's just sort of like watching it slowly go around the room you know he's not freaking out he's not calling for security he's not immediately trying to swat it away he's just kind of hiding and watching and seeing what will happen which I think is a really interesting choice for his character well, the reason he does do that is because the hunter seeker can like sense any sort of movement. So like he can't like he can't move like the hunter seekers move so quickly that if he does anything, it will kill him, which is why when the door opens, he's able to move and, and get it because it's going mm-hmm. in a different direction for a different moving object. Yeah, but it, it says a lot about who he is, that he is he's really knowledgeable about these sorts of things and he can keep calm in a stressful situation and figure out the best way to deal with it without, you know, panicking or anything like that. Yeah. These, this story is a lot about, it's not about physical strength. It's about the power of the mind, which star Wars, you know, learn the forest, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
but it, by the way, this is not me insulting Star Wars. I don't want it to come across as that. I, you know, the the, the original trilogy, I I love a lot. Um, but yeah, like this this story is a lot about the power of the mind, and it's also a women empowerment story. Like the Bene Gesserit, they are the most powerful people because they can sway the future of everything, basically. Um, and I find that to be a very fascinating concept. And I think that it is communicated really well in this movie, how we hear about like a, a path has been laid, like the, the Bene Gesserit have been here. It means they've been at work here. You know, you can see the little, um, the little hints here and there. And I think that it's just, oh, I'm just excited to see yeah, all of it yeah. come to fruition. But- well, to to kind of move on and speak a little bit about Rebecca Ferguson's performance, I love her character so much in that she is two people. You know, she's this, the witch, you know, she's the the respected men or, member of the Bene Gesserit who is highly trained, extremely capable. Um, she's in on the plans, although maybe not 100%, but, you know, she she knows more than she's letting on. But at the same time, she's also a mother and she has these moments of doubt or worry about, you know, I had all, I have all these high hopes for my son, but what have I actually, you know, done to him? What if he can't live up to it? What if it hurts him or kills him? You know, is this actually the right call? And so that's what I really love about the last hour of the movie is it's her finally seeing her son in these high pressure environments and he keeps surprising her. He is the one who kind of has done all this research about Arrakis and knows how to survive. And she's now having to follow his lead and he's showing her what to do. And he's the one who's making decisions. And I feel like you can just see on Rebecca Ferguson's face, all this sort of doubt and surprise and awe and being impressed, but also kind of concerned about what does this mean? You know, I've, I've given him all that I can do, but who is my son really? And what is he going to do with all of these things he's been given, which is great setup for hopefully part two yeah I mean so two two things kind of bouncing off of that one is that I love that scene between the duke when you know he he asks her he's like basically when push comes to shove will you protect Paul and she says with my life and he goes I'm not asking his mother I'm asking the Bene Gesserit and she doesn't answer his questions she says why are you thinking these thoughts and I'm like girl that's you did not answer Uh-oh. his question. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we do see this complexity in her because part of me watches this and is like, OK, this strong, this powerful woman who's supposed to be powerful. But then we see her like freaking out and crying at every single opportunity, like, you know, but I think um, it doesn't weaken her. It shows the complexity and the fact that like she has these struggles, but at the same time, you know, when she needs to, she can rise to the occasion and she is a badass and we only get kind of one real you know scene of the movie where we get to see that which is them in the ornithopter before they're thrown out and she is absolutely like she's like I'll cut your throat and throw you out and I'll cut your throat and throw you out and I you know I can tell you and command you in whatever way I want to do what I want and it's it's a really really badass scene that I love and I think that um you know I look forward to seeing more of that as we go forward. And I think one of my favorite, I guess, performing moments in this movie is when we get to the end and the final shot that we see is of her face. And she goes from like being a little bit, 
you know, oh, I'm excited for where we're going and this is going to be a grand adventure. And then very slowly her face turns turns into this like plotting, you know, like not evil, but just like this plotting look of, okay, like here, you know, yeah, the, how- the, the stage has been set and let's go, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I think that that is a really good, I think it's very subtle because you might not pick up on it, but if you're looking hard enough or if you've read the book, it's like, oh shit, like dang. Um, and so I love <laughs> that, that final moment because you know, this story does center around Paul, but also it very much so centers around the Bene Gesserit. And I think that it's communicating to us that like, there's more at, at play here. And this isn't just about, you know, Paul Atreides and his rise to being the king of whatever. It's like, no, there's other things going on. So yeah, I like her performance a lot. I think that in a lot of ways, she kind of carries this movie, um, especially as the story goes on. I think that you know, if we just had Paul and we didn't have and we didn't have um, Jessica, it, it it just wouldn't it wouldn't work. And I think the two of them as mother and son really have chemistry. And I think that, um, yeah, just really great, really great casting. Rebecca Ferguson, man, she's she's incredible. Her. She's incredible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she's always so great in the Mission Impossible movies and uh, I'm seeing her in, you know, probably a half dozen other things at least. And she's never less than great. Yeah. Yeah. The Bene Gesserit, honestly, are the, the Freeman or the, the your favorite sort of element of the, the movie. I think the Bene Gesserit are that for me. I just find them so yeah. endlessly fascinating. The part where Charlotte Rampling as the sort of like mother superior of the Bene Gesserit is like our plans are not mentioned <laughs> measured in years, but in centuries. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Ooh, what Ooh. are they up to? <laughs> and the fact that their whole attitude toward Paul, at least based on what she says to Jessica, is like all right, you've done all this stuff to create the the Messiah against our orders. We're going to go with you on that, but only so far. Like, we're going to help you out. But Paul is one of many options for us. Like, if he doesn't work out, we'll figure something else out. So, you know, like, we're we're only going to, we're going to help you out, but we're not 100% behind this. Well, I love that, uh, that, that, after the end of the Gom Jabbar scene when she's walking out of the room she's like goodbye human I hope you live <laughs> it's like <Yeah>. okay <laughs> great thank yep. you very much <laughs> also are you not human I don't understand yeah so I guess just kind of talking about the Gom Jabbar scene a little bit which Denis Villeneuve put so much like I really recommend looking up that video on YouTube it's absolutely fascinating how much thought was put into designing that box and designing that room and designing the costume that she's wearing and how she's sitting in that chair and the process of like how Paul moves from one side of the room to the other in terms of the voice because Denis Villeneuve says in that video I think very wisely he's like it would be weird if we had a shot of him like slowly walking across the room phased until he, you know, so he was like, oh, what if we zoom and then do this and, you know, and adjust the lighting and the focus and it's really fascinating. But one of my, my two favorite tidbits from that video is he talks about how in the original like plan for this scene, Charlotte Rampling, her, her character, this like veil thing was supposed to like she was supposed to lift it up behind her head but when they shot it they were he was like her eyes were so powerful piercing through this veil that like I couldn't 
take it off. It was like this absolutely just impressively. And I agree with him. Like, yeah, I, look, I think I'm it's like, a great girl, choice. Your eyes. What? Like you feel this power that she holds and this oppression. And, and like, even though she's sitting down and Paul is standing up, she has all of the power here. And she's like, yeah, I know. Like, I don't, <laughs> um, and then also in that same video, he explains how when she's holding the the gom jabar like poison needle, they specifically designed how her fingers would hold this needle. They were like, I want this finger here and this finger here and this finger up and this finger down. And these are the types of things that I love because, you know, when I was little, I would watch things like this and I'd be like, oh, wow, though, that's a decision that's made for a movie. And it just opens my eyes. And now that I work in the film industry, I recognize like every single thing that happens, you have a meeting about like nothing, at least if it's well made. Um, but yeah, um, right. <laughs> like nothing is done without there being a discussion about it. And even just like the way that she holds this needle is so impressive and it works really well with her eyes through that veil like I just oh that's man. so cool that's really also cool. actually I take it back Charlotte Rampling has the best performance in this like <laughs> she's Javier incredible Bardem, love him but her her face looking through that veil is just so good um but yeah I I'm trying to think I also love um Thufir Hawat his uh the guy who plays him Stephen McKinley um you know he had a few years where he just was popping up in everything. Yeah. And I was like, I love Lady you. Bird is the first thing that I remember like recognizing him in. And yeah, yeah, he's great. He's always he, great. I think, his little, his cute little umbrella. <laughs> I, so good. He's Stephen McKinley a, Henderson. I think his name is. Yeah. He's a way bigger character in the book, but you know, you can't, you can't keep everything in. Um, but go ahead. Can we talk a little bit about the Harkonnens and, Specifically, I'm wondering from the book, like Baron Harkonnen, his ability to fly and how he's like sort of a worm, but also a person. Can you like expand a little bit on that? Because that's the one thing that always kind of confused me when I'm watching this movie. I'm like, what is he exactly? (laughs) (laughs) Is he human? Is he a creature? Yeah. Is he a melding? Like what? (laughs) Yeah. Well... From from what I remember, because I read this book like three years ago and there was a lot of information in it. Um, but from what I remember, th- there's lots of different in- ways to interpret his character because in the book, he's kind of described as this like large, like he he's human, but he's like this large blob of a man almost. Like his body shape is just so bulbous and like, you know, kind of, um, warped in certain ways and almost kind of looks like he's unwell, but we're not really sure. But his body also communicates like power and strength. So I kind think of Morton Joe vibes in certain ways. Yeah, but he's not as sick and he's not like, he's not like putting on a show. He's not like, you know, creating a cult that's not actually real just so that he can, you know, he actually like carries power. He's from a line of descendants of people and um, all of that. But there's a lot of, for from what I remember, there's a lot of room for interpretation of what his character actually looks like and how he moves aside from him being this like big, this big kind of 
bulging guy. Um, bulging isn't the right word, but whatever. Um, yeah. And I guess, so that makes me think a little bit too about like, again, one of the reasons I love this genre is because I love the concept of world building and discovering new and different cultures. And I think that this movie does such a good job of establishing things very quickly, which makes the world feel really rich because when we go to, um, I forget the name of the Harkonnen planet, but we have these little prime, something like that, something like that. Yeah. We get these images of like, these men basically being crucified upside down in this like ceremony where they're collecting this blood water. And it's like, what are they like, what are they doing with this? And how it's just, that's like a whole aspect of a culture that it's like, wait, what's going on here? But we don't really know, but it establishes this part of the universe. And we have all of these different languages. And also when we first get to um, Arrakis, we see these people kind of, it kind of looks like they're doing a Muslim call to prayer, but then they also have these prayer beads that look like Catholicism. And it just really feels like this is a world thousands of years in the future where what we see now has just evolved over time. And um, I just love that we get all of these little tastes and even like that creature thing eating I don't even know when they before they go into this like silent um, force field like cone thing to have a discussion. It's like, what is that? I mean, it's a pet, but what is it? Where does it come from? Does everyone have this pet? Like, I don't know. Um, So I just love all of these little these little details that we see throughout throughout the film. I mean, they're literally everywhere everywhere every single frame and every single thing that you see the mise-en-scene of this movie <laughs> like everything the recurring um the the part about how duke leto's father like loved uh what's the word like taming bulls bullfighting? or fighting bullfighting yeah and was like apparent i guess killed by a bull and there's this bull head that he transports from their home planet to Arrakis as like a decoration and also Paul has this little statue of a bullfighter in his room and it's just like all these little recurring motifs for a character that we never see and I don't know if that piece of lore is going to play into the future at all but it's just a little little details to, to, to show you kind of who this family is where they've been kind of where they're coming where they're going that sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah and I don't know why that just made me think of this, but I just love this. There, there's almost like an avatar aspect to this of, you know, here on Caladan, we have water power and wind power and all of these powers. And if we go to Arrakis, we can harness desert power. Desert and it's power. Like, it's kind of, it would be goofy if it wasn't Oscar Isaac saying it. Like it's, it's such a strange thing to say, but Oscar Isaac says it and you're like, yeah, man, desert power. Desert power. <laughs> hell yeah. I'm ready for some desert power. <laughs> Which by the way, we should talk just a little bit about Oscar Isaac's performance yeah. too. Cause he's not a huge like he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time in this film, but I think he he really uses it to the maximum. You know, I mean, I love him so much. He's very attractive. <laughs> that beard <laughs> is really great, but like he's such a warm, regal presence. You know, you can buy him both as a ruler who is wise and respected by the people who follow him. You can 
you can really understand why he's viewed as a threat to the emperor, that if he's allowed to go on, that pe- more and more people could come to his side. But you also... And what happens to people like that in mm. fantasy stories? They don't live very long. Nope. <laughs> he's the Ned Stark of yep. <laughs> this film. Um, but yeah, you also buy him as a loving father who, you know really cares about his son and about his legacy and and wants to see that his son is taught properly and is encouraged to you know take on his destiny whatever that might be i i really love his performance even though he's not in the film very much yeah i i think his performance is also great i think it does a good job of just establishing the family that paul comes from which which helps us understand paul's motivation more you know, because at the end, Jessica's like, no, 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 Paul needs to get off world. And it's like, no, my father brought us here for a reason. And it's just, I, I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, it, I'm going to continue it, his plans. Yeah. It just, it helps us, helps under, helps establish Paul's motivations more as to like why he does what he does. And um, his father, you know, and it also shows us, it introduces us to why Duncan is so loyal and why Gurney is so loyal and all of these people because they trust this family and this line more than anything. And I also love that moment when um, Duncan kind of finds Jessica and Paul and he's like, I'm sorry, your father. And then immediately he kneels and he's like, my Lord Duke. <laughs> um, I just, I don't know. I When I think about fantasy and sci-fi fantasy stories, I love this concept of like, um, like monarchies and kings and queens and loyalty and all of this stuff. And then I'm like, in the real world, though, would I actually like that? Right. <laughs> but in the, in these fake stories, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the way of the world for literally millennia until, you know, a couple hundred years ago and still is the way of the world in many parts of the world today. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I part of humanity, part of part of our our makeup. Yeah. Ever since I was younger, I was like, I want to be a Duke Leto. I want to be an Aragorn. I want to be like, <laughs> I want to be any of these people. Give me the opportunity. Yeah. Well, it's the sort of like, you know, the the fantastical um, sort of ideal that we can then apply to our real lives. You know, not everyone is born to be the king is the, you know, the destined heir to the kingdom. But this idea of stepping into a life where you have obligations and responsibilities and needing to act with integrity and, um, you know, fulfill your, your duties. Like every human being has that, you know, it, but it's not Royal, <laughs> but it is an element of the, you know, human life and having these stories that inspire us by, um, showing these images of, of people who are, fulfill those those duties you know they're the Aragorn and they're the the heroes that we can look up to or they're the the ones who don't you know they're the the warning signs they're the Baron Harkonnens um you know it's it's a common archetype of of fantasy for a reason yeah and that just made me think of so when I was watching this last night with my friend I my friend like most of my friends my newer friends they know that I like fantasy but they're slowly learning how much I like it. Oh, you're and a nerd so, nerd. Yeah, I, I, I'm a nerd nerd, guys. Um, but so when we were watching this movie last night, I was watching it and I, was, and I said out loud, I was like, 
man, I want to fight like that. Like I've been saying for years that I'm going to take long sword classes and all of these things. And this time I'm going to do it. Like I want to learn. And I was like, I know that there's no, well, in the apocalypse, maybe, but as of now in my life, there's no practical use for this, but I still want to learn. Like I want to learn how to do this. And I also said, I, there is no part of me that wants to be an actor there's zero part of me that wants to be an actor. Um, kudos to people who do that, honestly, but like, it's not for me. Um, but I would love to be an actor for the sake of, I could wear costumes like this and not feel weird about it. Cause I have to wear it for the role. And I also could, I also could take choreography training to learn how to do this and be I'm paid telling you to do it. <laughs> be a professional extra slash stunt woman. I feel like you could rule that. I, I don't I have no idea how to even like go about doing that I also would absolutely have to move to LA in order to do that I yeah, feel that's like that's probably true unfortunately uh, not a whole lot of high fantasy sci-fi <laughs> epics being filmed in Chicago not yet not um, since Divergent yeah <laughs> which I doubt I was filmed in Chicago <laughs> um was it high fantasy it's 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 sci-fi no, fantasy I'm being for sure is it generous. high like, no um Anyway, but yes, I think, which I guess I kind of want to transition a little bit into, do you have any thoughts on the costume design in this movie? Because I think it is absolutely magnificent. The way that they design these still suits and the way that they explain how they work and all of the Fremen tools and all of that, like, I love how we have all of these details of you know, the costumes that the Bene Gesserit wear, the costumes that when they first arrive on Arrakis, all the women have these like jeweled like things over their faces with these veils. And oh, um, I love the gold outfit that Jessica wears when she's exactly. getting off the, the carrier is incredible. I love yeah. it so much. It's it's so it's so good. And then we have, you know, these costumes of the um, uh, of the Sardaukar. And, you know, it's just. I love the costumes in this movie. They just go, they go the extra mile in terms of establishing these characters and establishing these cultures. Um, And it's another one of those things where I feel like if they hadn't been pulled off in a way that felt real, this movie would have been a joke. It's like, why? And I know it's probably not fair to do this, but it's something that happens all the time. Comparing this movie to David Lynch's Dune from 19, <laughs> what was it, 1980 something? Something, yeah. I was going to um, ask if you've seen that. I I have not, mostly out of respect of David Lynch, because David Lynch has come forward and said, even very quickly after the movie came out, he's like, yeah, I never should have done that. I hate doing big budget things. I'm aware it's a disaster. <laughs> like, why would you cast Sting? Like, it doesn't, it yeah. doesn't make I, sense. For full the in, in the interest of full disclosure, I have seen about three quarters of it, and the reason that uh-huh. I've not seen the last quarter is because I fully fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that movie is an example of like this movie kind of feels like a joke because so many of these things don't feel real, and that's the art of fantasy and sci-fi. Like it has to be done to the upteenth degree otherwise it doesn't work and it's so hard to accomplish and so hard to pull off which is why movies and content like this is so rare and few and far between and also why we need to celebrate it when it happens and it's done well agreed agreed so 
yeah anyway do you have any thoughts on the costumes oh yeah costumes uh yeah i love the costume design i will say and this is not a fault of the movie just to be clear the one thing that keeps the the fremen and also the sandakar um outfits from having as much an impact on me as they probably should is because they look like a lot of mediocre superhero costume design Mm. which is like Every superhero costume, especially in sort of the the later years, is just a full body suit with some colors and then just random like metal bits glued onto it that don't really have any sort of functional purpose. And it's just really busy and ugly. Um, not every superhero suit, but just like a lot of later ones. Um, whereas this is the good version of that. You know, it's it's got a lot of elements, a lot of things going on, a lot of textures, but you really get the sense that they are weathered and worn and they all have a purpose. Like I I think they're really really well designed. It's just at a glance it kind of reminds me of a lot of bad superhero suits. Um but yeah, overall other like even apart from that, the um I love the use of the the linens and the very light sort of textured um cloths that are worn on arrakis you know very reminiscent of kind of traditional um garb from from arab countries and very practical for the climate of that planet i love the contrast with the house atreides what they wear when they're on their home planet i forget what their home planet is called caladan caladan yes thank you um but like the the sort of high military dress that they wear it's very different um yeah, I I think the costume design is is very good. It's very well considered. So what do you think about the visuals of this movie? Because I didn't realize this until this morning, but when I was trying to find reviews for of this movie, there were a lot of people that were like, this movie is too big. Like, Denis got caught up in the visuals. It's so overwhelming. It's over the top. It's too much. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? What what do you mean? They're like the, the <laughs> ship on Kaladam when it rises out of the water, it's so big that you feel like it's bigger than an ocean. Why do why does it need to be that big? And I'm like, why not? Like this is a it's fantasy. Like why are we asking these questions? It's cool. Like what? <laughs> yeah, I can see the I can see where they're coming from because I do feel like that in certain moments, but it's all clearly intentional you know it is so much bigger than anything that you could conceive it's so much bigger than anything anyone anything someone certainly on earth could ever create like you'd have to get all the metals on earth to create one of these ships you know <laughs> like it's so ridiculously massive your the human mind can't really comprehend it um but i think that is intentional because it's supposed to transport you to this is a civilization that is older than you can possibly imagine it has more resources available to it than you could possibly comprehend and you know these are high fantasy like long-lived houses who have all this wealth imaginable to them and they travel in this magnificence and this extravagance and um so I think it works well with the world that they are creating it is really funny as I was watching this movie my um my brother and I have been watching through The Expanse, which I'd seen before. He had not. This is his first watch. We just finished um, rewatching it. Great show. Highly recommend for everyone, anyone who loves sci-fi. But I will say the one, I love The Expanse, but the one criticism I have of it is it's very clearly a streaming television budget. And even when they moved to Amazon and they clearly got more money, 
everyone's kind of hanging out on the same cramped ship sets that look the same. Mm-hmm. And even when you have someone who is, you know, the the new fascist dictator who's attempting to take over the universe. Or He's on the same ship. <laughs> the president of the UN. Yeah, like they're traveling in the same sort of cramped, not very, um, you know, memorable interiors. And it's, I would assume, a product of our budget is not the best. And we have to use a lot of it on the CGI effects for the ships flying through space. And so therefore, we have to kind of get by with the same sets. And so it is really refreshing to see a sci-fi movie where it's like, oh, this is a movie budget. This is a cinema budget. You know, we're going to go all all out. We're going to make you understand the scale and the grandeur of everything, you know. Yeah. And it's funny when you say, you know, these ships, you'd need so much you know, resources in order to build these things. I'm like, that's true. But also they have intergalactic travel. Like there could be an entire planet that's bigger than Jupiter. That's entirely made of titanium. Like, you know, we don't know. They could, of course they could build these things. Like there were thousands of years in the future. If you can travel around the entire universe, like there's lots of things out there that we don't know. Yeah. I mean, in um, Star Wars, they built two Death Stars. <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's silly to me. Uh, no, it's not silly, but I'm just like, come on, guys. Yeah, this is I a mean, fake I, world. Like, yeah. have some I mean, fun. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I understand the criticism from the perspective of, like, even though this does, it's not necessarily that it doesn't make sense in the context of these civilizations or that it's not appropriate to kind of the grandeur of who these people are. It is, it does get a little bit difficult for the eyes and the brain to comprehend at a certain point where it's just like, Oh, here's another ship. That's like, you know, the size of a moon. (laughs) And I kind of, and the human beings are tiny little specks walking off of it. I, I feel like I need something more understandable for me to comprehend, to put, it into scale if that makes sense like I don't feel that all the time but every once in a while I'll be like I I, I feel like I can't understand the scale of what's going on right now <laughs> yeah I I see that but I love it um because I it it never takes me out of it I'm just like cool that's really cool that's really cool <laughs> that's really cool um I also love I think I realized this I don't know when I realized this it was a few years ago but Denis Villeneuve is quite honestly other than Quentin Tarantino like he's my favorite filmmaker working today if you I've watched all of his films except for I don't know if you pronounce it Incendies or Incendi or or whatever it is that's been on my list I would really like to watch it but every single one of his movies that I've seen again I don't remember what year this was that I figured this out but I was like every single one of his movies that I've seen is like in the top three of my movies from that particular year that it came out. And I was like, Hmm, if that's happened like five (laughs) times in a row with, I'm pretty sure that means I really like him. Um, so I just, I love him and his, his commitment to sci-fi and his love of just inventing things that we haven't seen before. And I think the grandeur of these ships and these, the architecture and these sets, it's just, it's overwhelming, but to me in a really exciting way, because I don't often get to see things like that, that actually feel real. I mean, you know, you watch stupid superhero movies and it's like, yeah, we have this huge stuff, but like, it doesn't feel real. It feels like a cartoon in a lot of ways. 
Whereas this, it's like, this feels like something that humans built and it's, I, I keep saying real, but I can't think of another, another word. Um, but it's just, like I said, this movie is just exciting to me. It, it makes me, it makes me happy that things like this can still be made and that people still care about it and people will still watch it. Um, and you can make big blockbusters that can be a success that are not, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah. Um, so I guess kind of just one of the last things that I want to go through is just, are there any particular scenes or particular moments that you in particular, I just said particular like five times, but (laughs) that you specifically want to discuss or go over? Um, good question. Cause we, we've talked through a lot of scenes that really stuck out to me. Um, let me see. I, not a scene necessarily, but I really love the character of Duncan Idaho and kind of the, Mm. the lighter, element that he brings to the film and what he brings out in Paul um and I love the fact that he's like this really respected warrior but he's also a really good diplomat like he's able to find and befriend the Fremen very quickly Mm -hmm. like good for you dude um he's gone native he's gone native yeah um the doctor character is one Uh, Dr. Yue no sorry the um I guess she's not a doctor she's the judge of the change uh Kane's Kines, Kines, yes, thank you. Um, Another character who I sort of forgot about the first screening, but stuck out to me a lot in the the rewatch. I think she's a really interesting character too, because you're never quite sure where her loyalties lie. Um, I'm trying to think of actual scenes though that we haven't really spoken about before. I'm not sure. Are there any that bring? Do you have any thoughts on the? uh... So the the two that I'm thinking of that are like. Well, okay, now I'm thinking of a bunch, but <laughs> That's okay. the two that really stick out to me are the the one where um, the Duke and kind of his crew, they go out to see um, a his spice crew. harvesting oh, yes. ship, and then obviously things go awry, and then a sandworm come and, comes, and this is the first time we see one of those, and da-da-da. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any thoughts on that scene in particular? Yeah. I love good, it so much. It's that's so a great good. scene. Yeah. It's another example of, I think, what I was talking about when I said, I think this is a really strong work of adaptation where it's a scene that is, it's natural within the flow of the story, you know, and it's helpful, you know, for pacing. It's good to have an action, kind of an action se- sequence here, but it's also setting up so many different things. You know, it's setting up what do the sandworms look like? How do they operate? Um, how does the spice work? Because Paul goes out and gets his first taste of spice and realizes he's really sensitive to it. Um, the fact that the Harkonnens have damaged all of this material and really sabotaged House Atreides, but um, House Atreides can't really do anything about it is a really important um well, it's not so important when, like, later Har- the Harkonnens come and completely wipe them out, but it's important for that moment in the story. Um, just the, you know, seeing the orthocopters in effect, and also, again, with the the character of Duke Leto, the fact that he is so quick to, I'm not going to prioritize the spice, I'm going to prioritize the lives of the men on that crawler and ma- risk my own life and the life of my son in order to make sure that they're safe. You know, that speaks so much to his character and who it is that Paul is learning from at this stage in his life. So yeah, I think it's just an, such an effective scene in terms of how much it's doing, how much heavy lifting it's doing within the narrative while also being a really tense and enjoyable action sequence. Well, 
you just said everything that I wanted to say. So oh, great. Okay. We're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're exactly right. It, it, it just communicates so much about, or not communicate, but it sets up so much of, of what's coming and it establishes all of these important details that you need to know in terms of how this world works, what the stakes are for what's happening, you know, how is this effect? How is all of this affecting Paul? And, and, um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to repeat everything that you just said, but yes, I think it's great. And I love that we have an action sequence coming this early in the movie. I mean, Denis Villeneuve, he's just so good at action when, when he does do it. Cause a lot of times he can be very, um, let's, let's think and let's meditate on this. But when he does he should action, make a Star Trek movie, um, that'd be cool. Um, but whenever he does do action, it's it's exceptional. And I think that this is a scene that really gets you invested in the characters, in the world, in the story, in the stakes, in everything. Um, and I love it for that reason. Um, it's it's so, so good. And also seeing the sandworms or the sandworm for the first time from underground and just kind of this scene also teaches you how the sandworms work in the sense that they they're attracted to rhythmic sounds and just before they get on the ship to go on this kind of um field trip or whatever you want to call it like she communicates how you can't use shields because the shields attract the attract the worms and drive them into a killing frenzy like oh yeah because they say why don't they just shield the the harvesters basically um so you just learn so much here and I think it's great. It's there's a lot of telling, but there's also a lot of showing. And I think the balance of how they how that is done here is is just really, really great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, speaking of the worms, I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk at all about when we when we have that that chase sequence, basically, between Paul and Jessica versus the worm, you know? Oh, gosh, yeah. And um, <laughs> that shot of the worm poking its little head <laughs> by little, I mean, so big. enormous. <laughs> it's <laughs> so big. Beyond comprehension, like, and just kind of looking at them. It's such a cool visual. It's so cool. And it also communicates how big this planet is. Like, the fact that there are hundreds, if not thousands of these things, just like, chilling underground and Mm -hmm. like also the um like because i i feel like i struggled a little bit to connect with arrakis just generally because i'm like well it's all like sand you know sand's not visually very interesting to me but i love how much effort this planet this movie and i assume the series will and will just continue to do so goes to establish no, 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 there's so much variety and life going on on this planet. You know, the outsiders only see the surface, but there are there are animals, there are plants that can survive, and there's different types of sand. Like, during that chase sequence, the reason they're running is because Paul is just like, drum sand! And we're like, I have no idea what drum sand is, <laughs> but apparently it's, it makes it really, you know, attractive to the sandworms, and then that's dangerous. They have to run. Like, that's, that's all you need to know. It's drum sand. They gotta run. <laughs> you know, it's yep. very cool. Thank goodness for rocks. Am I right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so great. And shout out to Frank Herbert. I mean, it's just so in- ingenious coming up with these, these thumpers and th- like the technology is mm-hmm. just, gosh, it's so, it's so yeah. great. You can just tell that this culture of people, they have 
lived here for so long and they've developed all of these technologies in order to survive like a compass that points north even on a planet where like that's not possible and these still suits and these tents that recycled Mm -hmm. water like it's just it's so cool yeah it's ingenious the whole part where they go into that um like bio station i forget what they call it but this idea that we were once engaged in research to draw the water out from the center of the planet and basically the ecology of this planet could have looked completely different we could have have been a paradise she says yeah and instead it's just you know the age-old story of colonization and exploitation of the natural resources which is the reason that it's continued to stay this way um but that's such an interesting little detail about you know arrakis and what the harkonnens have done to them prior to house atreides coming on board Mm -hmm. yeah and you know that the Harkonnens have been there doing that for a long time because um, Chani in her monologue in the beginning is like, you know, their treatment of us is all I've ever known. You know, granted, she's not that old, but <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think they say like 80 years or something like that is how long the Harkonnens have control like that eight decades like that's that's a long time. You know, mm-hmm. that's an entire multiple generations of, of freemen who've only ever known the Harkonnen rule. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what they do with all the spice and stuff in in part two. Um, another moment that I really like in this movie is, um, which this is very much so a me thing. Other people probably like, I don't, I don't care, but I care. I think it's really <laughs> cool is when, um, when the shields are let down and the Harkonnens are kind of entering the city and you see this, this row, it's like two rows of um of Atreides soldiers on these stairs it's like two rows so maybe I don't know 50 of them if not less fighting off like a horde of Harkonnen walking up these stairs and they're annihilating them and you get this sense that like they would have been able to fight all of them off had the Sardaukar not come at them from behind and I was just like, this is so cool. This concept of them being lined up and how they're fighting these people. And like, it shows, it shows how, how good at fighting they are. And it also looks awesome. And it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah. Which, by the way, this is an extremely random thought that I had while watching the movie. But I really love watching sci-fi that was, it's like imagining the future from someone who had not yet experienced things like, you know, the internet <laughs> or like drone warfare or you know like who who is imagining the future and futuristic technologies but from the perspective of someone who's you know just lived through world war ii and a bit of vietnam and um you know the 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 war and the concept of fighting that they understand looks kind of different from what we have today um and i think that's really interesting you know i i love the sort of blending of um, you know, high tech sci-fi, but with this more, you know, medieval fantastical um, ideas of how you fight or what training looks like, what nobility looks like, what um, the ways that in which you use technology. I don't know if I'm explaining this very well. No, no, but I, get I think what it's you're really saying. interesting. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying, and I, I. Yeah, that is really cool. I've never thought about it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I I 
I watch that moment and I'm like, I wish I was there fighting with those people because they're just, they're yeah. so cool. <laughs> well, um, they're like, they're in these cool tech suits and they've got ships, but they're just fighting with like blades, you know? They have guns, but they don't really use them. Swords are the best. Swords are the best Swords, weapon. yeah. I, I, I mean, I agree. I I'm not think, complaining. <laughs> I used to think bows and arrows, but bows and arrows are a little bit too impractical. They're super mm. cool, but you they're run good out of arrows range. real quick. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> but swords, like, you can fight in close quarters. There's daggers. There's long, yeah, you know. So much more dramatic. Like, so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I love that moment. Um, and I also love, you know, a line of soldiers and they're like, oh, it's so cool i love it um anyway um i'm trying to think oh i also really love but also get very frustrated by because so one of the things that does bother me about this story it happens in the book too although it's a little bit more developed in the book is this concept of like dr ua making this deal with the harkonnens because he actually believes that they'll give his wife back i'm like dude right do you know who these people like th- I I understand that they've told you your wife is being brutally tortured but even if that's the case but y- y- they're not What makes you think that yeah, yeah. you're actually gonna Yeah. But I do I do like this idea cuz it, it does feel like he did think through the plan in the sense that he's like this is a really shitty thing that I'm doing but if it doesn't work out there is a chance that the Duke could actually kill all of these people anyway. So therefore it might be worth it for me to do this. Like it might be kind of a win-win in a certain way. And so I like um, that he gives him this tooth and is like, you know, it'll be your last breath, but it, if, if you choose your timing, well, it could also be the Barons. And I love that line. And I love that concept. Screw shields. Like I hate that that um that the baron puts this shield on that apparently helps him stay alive oh, i was wondering if it was the shield that did it or if it's just more like the baron is so like no you know he's shield. kind of oh, okay. okay yeah yeah that's why they show him like turn the shield on before he leans forward um because that's that's what actually protects him which drives me nuts but makes me feel a little bit better about dr Huey's uh Stupid yeah. plan, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, because in my for some reason my memory of the first watch was just that it doesn't do anything and it's kind of useless. But no, it it kills everyone else in that room. It's only the Baron who survives, right. and he's like very much like hurt and needs to recover. So he's not you know, doing too well. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Also, of the, um... sorry. <laughs> yeah, how much I love like their healing bath just looks like a vat full of balsamic vinegar and olive oil. <laughs> I was like, honestly, that kind of looks great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was watching it and I was like, because again, I'm back at work. So my brain is just in a different mode. So I was watching it and I was like, I wonder how they made that prop. Like, what is that? Is it, yeah. is it like, how did they make that liquid? Like I legitimately was like, if I was in a meeting having a conversation about this, what would be the different options that we would be talking about in order to do that? And I was like, I have no idea. So if there are any uh, props people <laughs> from Dune listening to this episode, it's probably some making of docs somewhere. At gmail.com. <laughs> um, although I'm also like, is that props? Is that special effects or is that set dressing? It's probably more special effects, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, I'm not, uh, whatever. 
Um, <laughs> but um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about that. So the battle scene when the when the Harkonnens first show up and they are absolutely annihilating everybody. I mean, the scope and scale of that battle is absolutely ginormous. Like all of these ships are so huge. And I think they say like three battalions or, or something like that. Yeah, um, the, the House Atreides looks so ridiculously outmatched throughout I mean, this that entire one battle. Ship, that one ship that towards the end, it drops like 500, if not more than that, like bombs at the same time. I'm like, y'all are probably killing your own people at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, like, this is a full city of, of people, like in addition to the, the palace and the whatever garrison and mining warehouses and everything like that there seems to be a whole civilization on this planet that's separate from the fremen and has been there for a while like just around the mining city but it seems to be completely obliterated by the harkonnens yeah it is it it does emotionally impact me that moment when um when jessica and paul kind of are standing on that that sand hill or whatever and they look out at their city and i guess their new city i guess and it's all on fire and them just looking at it and recognizing what that means in terms of all the people that they've lost and all of the political lies that have been put in place and the fact that they're left alone out there to find their own way and you know just the emotional impact of that scene does really get me yeah I do have to wonder I don't know if this is going to be a thing at all in part two but since they're staying with the Fremen at the end, how much of House Atreides, like what is going on back in Kaladin? Or is there some sort of steward who's going to take over? Like, very curious about what's going to... Okay, Tatum's making faces that make me think we're going to get some answers on this because I was very curious. Yeah, there there are people that survived the battle that just happened. And there's a lot of... Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of political stuff that that is to come. I don't okay, know. That's good. I how, loved, I love the political stuff. Yeah, I don't know how much, because, yeah, I don't know how much we'll get into it. Anyway, yeah. Um, so I think the last two scenes that I that are coming to my mind that I want to discuss are we did kind of touch on this already a little bit but the scene when they're in the ornithopter and we hear Jessica kind of using the voice for the first time to oh, just like yeah. so they mm-hmm. can I get like escape their captors basically um yeah i i love that scene i remember the first time i watched the movie i think that was the scene i loved the most like i came home from the theater and i was looking up on youtube i was like i want to watch that scene again it was kind of like when i saw rogue one and immediately when i got home i was like i want to watch that final scene with darth vader again um so yeah i i still love that scene i think it's so great to see jessica unleash her power um which we'll get more of as time goes on um but I don't know. It's it's just it's it's really cool. <laughs> like her her face when she because she's not just saying things. Her face is like so forceful and mm-hmm. just like brutal. Yeah, well, and, and like, I love the way that they whatever sort of voice filters they used. I don't know how they do the voice, but it Neville sounds. Neville talks about that in the behind the scenes. If people want to watch it, oh, okay. Well, it sounds so good and like. You can tell that when Paul uses the voice, it's a 
it's still working, but it's a weaker version of the voice. And then when Jessica out- unleashes the full version, like she sounds demonic. It sounds terrifying. You know, she's like, untie me. Mm-hmm. Kill him. You know, it's so cool. Set us um, free. <laughs> set us free. Yeah. Like it really does sound like, you know, the exorcist or something like that. Um, also, side note, I love the little sign language that she has that she uses. Yes. To communicate to Paul and to her guards that just never explained why she has a sign language that she uses, but it comes in handy a lot. And I, it's just a cool little detail that I, I love. Unfortunately, I am not knowledgeable enough, but I wonder if that's real sign language or if it's yeah, like or if it's like, sign language. Yeah. And it, like within the context of the story, is it a Bene Gesserit thing or is it a House Atreides thing or is it... Um, something else I don't know but yeah and like how does it work because she can use it kind of just with one hand and is she spelling out words is it like you say is it related to an adaptation of actual sign language is it something that was created for the film I don't know but it's awesome yeah yeah me neither but I, I yeah I love the the inclusion of that in in the story um so I guess the last thing is just the final scene that apparently people don't like, but I love, which is this um, this this fight sequence at the end between Paul and Jamis, you know, when, when he invokes the umtal, because the strongest must lead, and Jessica bested Stilgar, and he didn't know she <laughs> yeah. was a wielding woman. And- right, which I will say, and like within the context of the story, like, you know, like I said before, Paul winning the fight works a lot better for me this time around. He has an enormous destiny. He has training. Jessica is also an incredibly impressive fighter. That's fine. I do feel like within the context of this movie, we only ever see the Fremen getting bested in battle. Which makes me, <laughs> like, how good fighters are they, actually? I know that's not the case. I'm sure we'll see their prowess in the next one. But When do we see them getting bested aside from this? I mean, I know that we see Liet Kynes get hit from behind with an arrow, but... Before that happens, she literally pulls out these tools to ride the worm that she's calling. I know, which so, is so cool. Which is so, so cool. <laughs> but other than this last scene, when do you when do you see that happening? Well, we don't really see them in battle at all before the scene. There is the the part of the the first part where Chani is doing the exposition, where we see them fighting, and they do seem to be very impressive warriors. Yeah, I'm yeah. just like I- still guard. This random lady bested you in battle. Maybe you shouldn't be the leader. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I I'm just that, kidding. She's she's extremely well trained. I think the difference is that they have the power of the Bene Gesserit behind them, and mm. that is what makes the difference. Okay. Um, but they don't know that, and we don't know that yet. Kind of. Um, but yes, I just I love that concept of of him being like the woman is not trained and she's too old to learn, and then he's like. I judge too quickly. Why did you not tell me that you're a wielding woman? And she's like, our conversation ran short, you know? Great. Um, Yeah. I, it's, it's again, a moment where we get to see how powerful she is. Um, And I love all these like foot moves that they use in this movie. You know, their hands are tied or something like that. And they use their feet and like drop people to the ground. We see that a few times in this movie. I think it's really cool. Yeah. It's almost like martial arts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, what I'm saying is, I want to learn to fight like <laughs> like a fremen. <laughs> like a fremen. You should also learn the sand walk. Start walking oh, like that all the time. I already walk like that. 
Um, <laughs> you haven't seen me in, in a few years. Like, you know. Um, also, that's so weird that I haven't seen you for years. Anyway. Um, yeah. So any any thoughts on this kind of final final fight between Paul and Jamis? I just, again, kind of what I was saying before about Stilgar and Jamis and just the, the, the Fremen in general. I feel like we learn a lot about their culture, but like through Jamis's performance, I love that he kind of has this, this wild, um, you know, just this, this wild way that he behaves of him just kind of screaming. And, you know, I just, it feels very, um, unsophisticated in the sense that like, we're not coming from this culture of, we have to carry ourselves in a specific way. It's like, no, if you're angry, if you're frustrated, if you need to hype yourself up, like whatever it is, like (laughs) express it however you need to, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, it's really, really cool. And, um, I just think he does a really great job in that scene of, um, I, I don't know. I just think it's really cool and how it establishes this sense of, you know, Jamis is seemingly this very respected, good fighter that everyone really likes so much so that he believes that he could potentially be a better leader than Stilgar, you know? And while this battle is happening and he's very clearly being bested multiple times in a row, everyone is just sitting on the side watching it happen. And Stilgar literally looks at Jessica and is like, is he toying with him? Like, why is he not dead yet? Basically. (laughs) And this sense of like, this is just how their culture works. And also, you know, he's dead and they wrap him up and they're carrying him somewhere. Got to preserve that water. Like we've seen, we've seen visions of him, you know, being alive. And so, you know. Yeah. I was wondering about that because. Is he dead? I hadn't hmm. even picked up on that the first time around is that Paul has these visions of Jama specifically kind of teaching him the ways of the Fremen. And so it calls into question, you know, when Jamis then challenges him, it calls into question like, are these visions of potential future or did I really kill him or like what is going on here? Yeah. Um, I love a mind the- that bridges space and time. Yeah. The whole thing with Chani giving him the, I think they call it the Chris knife, which is like mm-hmm. made out of the tooth of a, a sandworm and how, you know, she, I love her whole attitude is basically like, yeah, you have no chance, but you know, I'm yeah. going to give you this thing. That'll be, it'll give you a little extra honor for you to die when you inevitably die for you to be holding yeah. this knife. Yeah. Like she has so little faith in him, which is kind of great. He's a great fighter. He won't let you suffer. Like, yeah. It's fine. <laughs> um, also the moment that sense that like the Fremen, you know, mm-hmm. obviously as Duncan says early in the movie, they fight like demons, but they're not, but they're not demons. Like they might fight like them, but they seem like they have this respect for, you know, the person who's on the other side of the blade. You know, they're not heartless killers. They're yeah. just, this is the world that we live in and we've learned to survive, but we will treat people with honor, you know? And I, I love that addition. They're like the exact opposite of the, of the Harkonnens. Right. In that way. Yes. Yeah. The moment within the fight scene that, really really worked for me the second time around I think maybe the first time around I didn't really pick up on it is you know Paul best Jamis and puts his knife to his throat and Paul's attitude is very clearly like okay you know this is as far as my training has ever got you know I put my knife to your throat 
and you're in a vulnerable position. So now the fight's over and we can stop. Right. And the revelation that like, oh, no, this is to the death. We didn't tell you that. Yeah. No, this is to the death. And Jessica being like, Paul has never killed someone before, like going into that fight and not realizing what that you're going to come out of it on the other side, a murderer is and Paul having to sort of in the moment, like re sort of calibrate what he is doing, you know, is, yeah, it it really struck me this time around that he doesn't even under, fully understand when he enters into this fight what he is doing. And then all of a sudden he comes, has to come out of it a changed person on the other side. Mm-hmm. He's the chosen one. He must, he must do things that otherwise he dare not do. Yeah. Well, in that vision where they say like, you know, you must die to become the Quizich Hatterak, but in killing another person, you yourself die or something like that. Like this mm-hmm. sort of tortured logic that basically Atreides means- must die in yes. order for the Quizach Hatterak to rise. Yes. <clears throat> but yeah, you've yes. got to kill someone in order to embrace your destiny. Yeah. Mm. It's so good. I- I love sci-fi fantasy and I just, I love, I, I know I've said this, but I love when visual mediums do it well because, you know, those of us who are fans of books like this, we read them and we're like, these worlds are so rich, but at the same time, so many of us are like, don't adapt this because we know that if you do it, you're not going to be able to capture because these, these stories can be so complex so when it does happen and it's done successfully, it's like, wow, this is really an accomplishment. And it's something to be, to be, you know, recognized for. Um, which, speaking of recognition, we can transition into awards unless there's something else here that you feel like you would like to touch on. But I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, nothing else is sticking out to me as something that uh, we haven't really talked about. Yeah, I just want to say one final thing. I love this this moment where I think Le- uh, Liet Kynes has two moments where she says something similar. She says it once to um, to the Duke, and then I think she says it again to Duncan um, in different ways. But she says something along the lines of, like, Arrakis has seen men like you come and go. You know, it's but like so just take care of yourself and your loved ones because that's all you can do like like this planet doesn't care you know and she says something earlier as well of the desert is not kind to to machinery or something and and Arrakis is also not kind to humans you know and I I just think it's really great that she kind of establishes that for us of you guys are just a small piece in the history of everything about this planet and you are focused on this thing that we don't actually care about here because like it could because if it's not you guys it's going to be someone else and if it's not them it's going to be someone else and here we go again like we can only be here right now and protect the people that we love and I think that that's a good introduction to just the culture of the Fremen you know of like we're here to protect each other and and care for each other and because we live in such a harsh environment all we have is each other um but yeah I I like Liet Kynes a lot I like Dr. Mm -hmm. Kynes she's yeah yeah she's great I had forgotten that she dies and I was very very disappointed when that happens I wish she could have been in the second film there's so many people that I'm like 
I'm like, I want, I want Duke Leto to be in the next film. I know. You know? Duncan Idaho is one where I'm like, I don't know if he actually dies. He probably does, but I'm also like, maybe. I don't know. We'll mm-hmm. see. Don't spoil anything. I I will say, um, I think so. I, I watched the show recently called Our Flag Means Death. And there's this moment where Taika Waititi's character, his name's Blackbeard, and he's this kind of, everyone's terrified of him as a pirate. There's legend of him killing all of these people and blah, blah, blah. And then (laughs) there's a moment when, so he ends up falling in love with another pirate and blah, blah, blah. And the two of them get captured and they, you know, enlist in in the British army or or whatever it is. And (laughs) when they're enlisted in the British army, the two of them like share a bunk bed and so there's one moment where, um, oh gosh, why am I forgetting the protagonist's name right now? Um, I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, he looks down to talk to Blackbeard, Taika Waititi's character, and he has shaved his beard and he fre- he's like, whoa, like, <laughs> like, all I've seen you with is a beard and you just look really strange. And then Blackbeard's like, what do you mean? Like sorry what's wrong with my face you know and I watched this and I was like I'm sorry Jason Jason Momoa Momoa is meant to have a beard (laughs) like he I don't know why they made the choice for him to not have a beard in this movie maybe it's like a military uniform sort of thing of like you you but Josh Brolin has a beard I know that's where I get confused um (laughs) I guess they just want to like visually separate him from his you know his Game of Thrones, his Aquaman self. I guess it is a bit strange. It's like, who is this person again? <laughs> yeah, I think they're trying to make him look a little bit more cleaned up than he is, like in other things. Um, but yeah, he he's not he's not a bad looking man, but he should he needs to have a beard on his <laughs> face. Um, <laughs> he doesn't need to. Like, it's fine. You know everyone's body is beautiful embrace however you want to look because ultimately it's your body and it doesn't care what anyone else thinks but he can do I, whatever I he say, wants with his facial hair in his personal life but yes, in i am just he should have a beard I, I am just more familiar with him having a beard so when he doesn't have one it feels a little bit odd that is what i will say <laughs> anyway great um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i will talk about some awards here so this movie it was very well recognized um i will say though i remember this year i was very angry that this movie was not nominated that denis villeneuve was not nominated for best director um which i still think is terrible especially after watching all of the behind the scenes for this movie like this is his passion project. He read the book. He kept going back to the book when it came to adapting this. He he was kind of the, he really was the visionary for this movie. Like he was deeply involved in every single aspect of this, which isn't always true for directors, I don't think. Um, but he was so passionate about this. This is an incredible achievement. And I'm still quite frustrated that he wasn't nominated for best director. I'm looking at um, who the, the, oh gosh. What, who were yeah. the nominees that year? Well, Jane Campion won for The Power of the Dog. Okay. Um, <clears throat> other nine uh, nominees were Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. Mm. Yeah. Uh, could've, I've could've totally forgot out. about that movie, which says a lot about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ryosuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. Good nominee, I mm. think. That, uh, that, that has good, good direction. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Ugh. and then Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. Okay. 
I feel like at least two like, of those uh, I would two of those could have been out. taken out. Yeah. Um and honestly, out of all of those, I think that Denis Villeneuve should have won, but that's my own personal preference. I know that you were rooting for Steven Spielberg that year. Um, Not necessarily over Jaden Campion, but I do really yeah. like the the, nominate, the direction of West Side Story, so I'm glad he was nominated. Yeah. I mean, I'm not angry that Jane Campion won. She's incredible, and I do like that movie a lot, but I I think Denis Villeneuve, this is, this is a big achievement for him. Anyway, so this movie was nominated for 10 Oscars. Um, the ones that it was nominated for but did not win were Best Picture, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Costume Design, Best Adapted Screenplay. Geneva, can you look up what won Adapted Screenplay that year? Yeah. Because I'm con- oh, no, it was Power of the Dog, right? No, it was Coda. What? Yep. No, 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 no. Because Coda Power- won Best Picture, so that couldn't be the same year as Power of the Dog. Because Power of the Dog won Best Picture. Nope. Power of the Dog was also nominated, but Coda won Best Picture. Coda won Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. I thought Power of the Dog won Best Picture. No, Coda won Best Picture. I was pretty weren't upset about it. Separate, <laughs> weren't those two separate years? No, nope. same year. Coda won Best Picture. Coda over won Best the Picture. Tana, where were you? <laughs> no, I remember Coda winning Best Picture, but I also remember the Power of the Dog winning Best Picture. I thought they no. were two separate years. No, I wish it had. That was the one I was wow. rooting for. But no, Coda beat Power of the Dog to win Best Picture. Now I'm angry all over again. <laughs> yeah. Dang, what a terrible year for the Oscars. Yeah, apologies to anyone heck? out there who likes Coda. Coda's it's one of those movies. To I don't me, hate Coda. We don't need it's, to relitigate it, but yeah, it's like one of those movies that it's a perfectly fine movie, but it's not to me in the level of Best Picture. And there are other films that were nominated that are at that level. It's and an so Oscar I, bait movie. It, I mean, it's it's not a bad movie. Like I did enjoy it. I don't think it's bad. Uh, but winning Best Picture, especially above, above these nominees, yeah, n- no. Yeah. Um, anyway, and so that one Best Adapted Screenplay, strange. Um, okay, uh, and then so what this movie won was Best Sound, Best Visual Effects, Best Production Design, Best Original Score, Best Editing, Best Cinematography, all of which it deserved, in my opinion. Um, so I what Geneva? Sorry, I'm going to keep asking you questions. That's okay. What I've won, got the what, what won best costume design that year? Uh, Cruella. Oh, okay. Which I've never I seen, but I, I've heard it has very good... From what I've seen, it does have very good costume design. Yeah, I get that. Um, so anyway, those are uh, those are Oscars. So uh, this movie has a 74 on Metacritic and an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. I almost don't want to read any reviews. Like, I really was digging to try and find some that I was happy with, and I didn't really find any, but I chose... a two that I was like well I don't hate these um but there weren't any that were like really really positive about it they were kind of like it looked great but the story was lacking or I liked the story but visually it was too much so I was like okay whatever um but the two that I found the first one comes from Matt Singer at Screen Crush and he says to my amazement and to Villeneuve's credit This new Dune is totally clear in its premise, politics, and operatic sci-fi story. It's also filled with the sort of epic grandeur of vision that Dune fans always insist makes the original text special. I actually don't mind that one. Um, And then the next one is from Jake Coyle at the Associated Press, and he says... With an immense sense of scale, ranging from Mosquito to Jason Momoa. (laughs) Mosquito to Momoa. (laughs) 
Dune renders, an, <laughs> Dune renders an age-old tale of palace intrigue and indigenous struggle in exaggerated cosmic contours. Like any drift of sand, Dune feels sculpted by elemental primal forces. Ooh, I like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So those those are the two that I chose. Um, so I feel like we've already done this, but my overall thoughts on this movie, <laughs> yeah. it's really, really good. I think... Uh, really successful um adaptations of sci-fi fantasy or fantasy novels and book series come only ever so often and i'm really glad that this movie exists i really hope that part two doesn't let me down but it's denis so i don't think that it will um but we will talk about that soon because yeah as of our episode release uh dune comes out next week so dune part two comes out next week um so yeah, I love this movie. I won't repeat everything that I've said. Um, if you haven't seen this, I highly recommend going to watch it. Also, I'll throw this out there again. Go to YouTube. Look up the behind-the-scenes video of this. It's very impressive. Um, also, look up Hans Zimmer's 15-minute-ish video of just describing how he came up with the sound design and the music and the instruments for this film. Um, it's very impressive. And the depths of the production of this film are... I won't say endless, but uh, they are very deep. So, yeah. What about you, Geneva? Yeah, I'm so glad that you chose this. I'm really glad that I rewatched it because I I really, truly picked up on so much more the second time around. You know, the first time it's kind of overwhelming and I often struggle with sci-fi movies where there's a lot of terms and names to learn very quickly. And so it's really helpful to watch on Netflix with subtitles on. <laughs> um, so that was really nice. But yeah, this movie is incredible. Um, I was surprised to see that Metacritic uh, number as low as it is. I mean, 74 is not a bad number by any means, but I would have expected it to be much um, higher. Yeah, People this don't is... like this movie. I'm telling you, like there, there's a lot of criticisms out there for this movie. Yeah, I don't I feel like I feel like for a lot of people, it's less they don't like it and more just it's hard to love, like to get over that barrier and just fully love it, maybe. Like mm -hmm. you can like it and respect it, but still have certain reservations. But I think it's fantastic. And I'm really, really excited for Dune 2 to see where the story is going from here since I've not <laughs> read the book and I slept through <laughs> <laughs> the end of David Lynch's Dune. I have no idea. So. <laughs> you mean you haven't gone back to it to finish it? <laughs> no, no. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'll leave it there. Um, so yeah, my final thoughts. Yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for watching it. I'm glad we got to talk about it. I, yeah, me too. I love this movie. It's one of my favorites of the last few years. Um, and I've watched it like six times at this point. Nice. Uh, nice. So I love it. So yeah. Um, Geneva, what are we talking about next week? Yes. I'm very excited about next <laughs> week. We are going to talk about a movie that's sort of like simultaneously I love and also hate. And it's, uh, it's a good time. Uh, it's the Phantom of the Opera from 2004. All right. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. This is a movie I find extremely enjoyable, but also really annoys me sometimes. And that sometimes leads to really good conversation. So, yeah, yeah. I think, I think we'll have a good discussion about this one. It'll be, it'll be fun. So, yeah. Okay, everybody, uh, 
thanks for thanks for joining us today uh go watch dune part two and uh email us your thoughts about it yeah <laughs> can't wait to hear all right um bye everybody bye Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.